Welcome to Eric Hurst's Training for Climbing podcast. Training for Climbing podcast. Training for Climbing. Training for Climbing. Training for Climbing. Hello, I'm Eric Hurst of trainingforclimbing.com, and let me begin by wishing you a happy new year. I love the sense of optimism and possibility that the new year brings. And I hope this podcast is coming at the right time to help you reshape your training plan for the new year and hopefully reach your climbing goals in 2017. Topics I'll cover in this podcast include, number one, an overview of training program design and the importance of accurate self-assessment in designing and executing the best training program for you. Number two, the importance of getting stronger during the winter off-season, not just in the forms, but also in a couple of other important areas that I'll tell you about in just a bit. And third, I'll finish up with some tips on how to make the most of your workouts. That is, the importance of cutting out some of the junk training you do and how you can get the most bang for your training buck. Before I dig into these rich topics, I want to spend just a moment bringing all of the listeners up to speed on how we got here, or actually how I came to be in the position I am as a veteran climber and coach, and the guy you're listening to on this podcast. Um, So uh, please entertain me here for a moment while I just give you a quick recap. I've actually been climbing 40 years. This March will be 40 years. Uh, I started when I was 13 years old, so do the math, that's 1977. So yes, I'm uh, 53 years old. Um, And I was a typical youngster back then. I played baseball and gymnastics and ran cross country, and climbing was very out there sport. It wasn't visible like it is today. Somehow, uh, through the blessing of my older brother, I got introduced to climbing and was one of just a handful of climbers here in Pennsylvania. Certainly, there weren't very many kid climbers at the time, uh, just a few of us. And uh, But I fell in love like you uh, have, and uh, the rest is history. Um, and back in those days, there wasn't sport climbing. There weren't crash pads for bouldering, so it was a little bit different of a sport. Um, But by age 17, by the early 1980s, I was climbing 512, which back then was a lofty grade. If you're a trad climbing 512, that was pretty serious stuff. And I put up some of the first uh, 513s in the eastern U.S. in the uh, 1980s, specifically at the New River Gorge, was kind of my home area for a number of years. And I participated with a bunch of great guys down there in developing the new into the world-class area that it is. I started writing about training uh, in the late 1980s. I wrote a couple of articles for Rock and Ice and Climbing Magazine. Since then, I've written hundreds of articles, and that actually led me into writing books. My first book published in 1994. It was called Flash Training. That book's long out of print, but it gave birth to Training for Climbing, which is my flagship book, which is now on its third edition. If you haven't seen the new edition. Um, it's a great book. It's got Alex Megos flying on the cover on lucid dreaming. And I think it's the most uh, high-tech science-based uh, training book that there's uh, that's out there right now. There's a bunch of good books. You, you should read them all. But I think this uh, Training for Climbing third edition uh, sense, uh, sets the new benchmark uh, for the time being. 
You know, there's a lot of great research being done, and I'll be telling you more about that in the coming days. I've written several other books, uh, Learning to Climb Indoors, How to Climb 512, uh, a real heady book called Maximum Climbing. It's a book about climbing mastery. If that's your kind of thing, you want to check that uh, that book out as well. You can learn more about all this stuff on my website. You know, kind of as a veteran climber the last 15 years, you know, I still train hard. I still like to push my limits and climb 513, which at age uh, 50 is easier said than done, but uh, I enjoy doing it. Um, but, you know, really my two teenage boys, they warm up on my projects. Uh, they've turned into much better climbers than I ever was um, as a a climber starting in the 70s. But that's all great. I love where this sport is going, the uh, enthusiasm, the, the people that are just passionate about getting outdoors, moving over stone, or even pulling down on plastic indoors and training. It's all good. It's life-changing stuff, as you've uh, certainly discovered. And it's a sport that I'm happy to share with the world. I, you know, there's uh, pros and cons to climbing becoming as popular as it is now. And uh, one of the big pros is its life-changing potential um, and how rich it can make a life by uh, being able to climb, push yourself in this very individual sport, but also being able to share it with a partner and uh, the others uh, that uh, join you in your training and climbing adventures. So in any case, that's kind of where I got to where I am now here 40 years later, still passionate about climbing. Uh, you know what? Climbing is a life sport and that's the beauty of it. It's why I hate when I see uh, people um, getting uh, kids or young adults burned out on climbing by pushing them too hard um, at an early age or early on or getting them injured because of inappropriate training practices or poor coaching. And those are great topics for a future podcast, um, but I'll let that go for now and uh, move on to uh, what I want to get into here in this podcast. And really, you know, I've been podcasting for quite some time. I, I didn't mention this, but I did my first podcast about a decade ago for a, a now defunct website called Podclimber. Uh, Larry Brumwell was Head of his day, ahead of his time, in launching a climbing podcast uh, website um, based out of Bend, Oregon, uh, about a decade ago, and I did uh, quite a few, probably fifty training podcasts for him over a few years. But it was in the early days of iPods and smartphones. I don't think we're even around yet when that site was launched. Uh, so it was, uh, it, it didn't really get traction. Uh, since then, you know, podcasting's become a great thing. Great way to pass time in the car, uh, listening to some quality podcasts. And when it comes to climbing podcasters, there's some good ones out there. Chris Cluis, and when it comes to training, of course, Neely and, and Chris Hampton. And there's others, uh, obviously, I can't name them all. And my goal here isn't to try to re you know, uh, compete or, or repeat what others are doing. And uh, I think what I'm going to do with my podcast from now on is kind of these topic uh, focused podcasts, not based on personalities. I won't be doing interviews, or at least very rarely will I do interviews. And instead, I'll, I'll pick a topic or two or three and drill down um, as a veteran coach, um, as a researcher, as someone who's really been around uh, some of the best climbers and best minds in the sport for the last 40 years. You name it, from John Gill to Wolfgang Gulick to Lynn Hill and Alex Megos, you name it, the full gamut, by you know uh, interacting with those people, um, and through my own uh, journey as a climber over 40 years and as a coach 
and as a researcher, I think I have a very unique perspective um, and a, a rare amount of experience to share with you all. Um, and I've done so in my books, but you know, here via podcast, I can deliver that message to you in a different way. So my goal going forward is to record around a 30-minute podcast once a month. Um, now that I finished up two books, I have some a little bit of free time that I can dedicate to this. And so that's my goal. Hopefully I can follow through and, and bring you these podcasts. I, I would certainly appreciate your feedback and your reviews of this podcast. That'll keep me going and hopefully uh, making them better as time uh, goes on. And if you have a topic or a question you'd like addressed in one of these podcasts, you can certainly fire me a note through my website, trainingforclimbing.com. Okay, so let's get on to the first of the three topics I want to drill down into today is uh, training program design. Uh, you know, it's now um, Northern Hemisphere winter, so for many climbers, this is kind of an off-season, unless you live at a lower latitude where there's milder weather, you're probably holed up in a gym uh, or in a home gym like I am and spending the winter uh, training and preparing and uh, visualizing and setting goals for the season ahead. So uh, that's kind of what this podcast focuses on. Uh, the three topics deal with how to make the most of your winter training. And uh, when it comes to training program design, it really depends on who you are, what your ability level is, where you're at in your climbing career, if you want to call it that. Um, everybody has a little different need, and certainly I can't prescribe with a high uh, detail here uh, how you specifically should behave, but hopefully I can break things down here and give you some insight into perhaps how you should be designing things and what the MO of your training and climbing should be this winter. Um, you know, as a, a a beginning climber, if that's you, if you're a novice climber, someone who's only been in this sport a year or two, or maybe a month or two, you know, it's really all about learning the basics. I mean, I, I say this all the time, and I like to drill it home, you know, climbing is first and foremost a skill sport. Yes, it takes strength. It requires endurance. We get pumped when we're climbing at our limit, but first and foremost, you need to move efficiently. You need to learn your skills to get up the rock face, to pull down on the plastic in the most economic manner. And uh, climbing, as intuitive as it is, you know, if you climb a juggy V0 at the bouldering gym, it's not too different from climbing a ladder. But when the holds get smaller and more sparse and less positive and the wall gets steeper, all of a sudden there's um, a lot of technique, a lot of nuance that comes into play. Or if you're climbing outdoors, climbing cracks, overhangs, slabs, again, a lot of nuance that is very specific to the type of rock, the type of climb, the frictional properties, the angle of the rock, etc. And uh, so we have a very diverse playing field. I often compare it to golf in that you know, golf courses, every golf course is different. Um, and what you have to do on the golf course, whether it's putting or chipping or long shots or driving, they're all very different skill sets. Being a good driver doesn't mean you're going to be good at putting. They're completely different. Um, and that is how climbing is. You know, just because you're good at thin vertical face doesn't mean you're going to be good at steep, powerful routes. Uh, there's different moves and different physical uh, traits that are needed, and that must be uh, learned and trained. And so for the beginner, you just need a vast 
exposure to uh, you know different climbing situations. Obviously, indoors you can get a lot of high volume climbing days in, but you know, the techniques are somewhat limited by the nature of indoor climbing. So, you know, uh, getting a lot of climbing time in indoors and outdoors is critical to growing your skills and refining your movement. And a good coach or a partner who's more advanced that can help give you some feedback uh, or shooting some video and getting feedback that way is important, uh, as it is in any sport where you're trying to refine technique. Um, you might think you're doing it right, or you might think you're climbing efficiently, but the video or the objective observer uh, will see differently. So, um, you know, that is a long-term process. I think, you know, I've been climbing 40 years. There's still things that I can learn to do better. So you have to really take a long-term perspective. And no matter how good uh, you are, uh, how hard you climb, you can always refine uh, your uh, technical game and learn new skills. And certainly, you know, the mental aspects are something you can work on for a lifetime when it comes to climbing. All of those things uh, must be constantly worked on. But, you know, when we talk about winter training, it's usually the physical uh, aspects that you think about. Um, and that's what we're going to focus on mostly here in this podcast. Now, again, for a beginner climber, if you're overweight, well, that's something you want to you know, deal with because climbing is a strength to weight ratio sport, especially when the walls begin to overhang. Um, so doing some aerobic activity, uh, doing some general conditioning. If you can only do a few pull-ups, well, that's going to be a limiting factor. So it would be foolish to start training on a fingerboard or doing anything overly specific early on uh, as, a, as a new climber. You want to train more generally, pull-ups, push-ups, core training, um, antagonist muscle training, uh, and um, and some aerobic training doesn't hurt, both for uh, improving body composition, but also if you're going to put in long days, uh, having some aerobic conditioning helps out. It also helps speed recovery between climbs. So, uh, you know, the beginning climber doesn't need a super nuanced program, doesn't need a periodized program. They need to climb three or four days per week regularly and you will get stronger you will improve your mental and technical skills and you will get better month over month year over year at least for the first couple of years now as you become more of an intermediate climber say pushing in to the 510 511 uh, 512 grade level for rope climbing or say getting into the v5 v6 uh, range of bouldering well then, you know, you'd probably have to start thinking about some more sports specific training because you know, actual climbing does not uh, always train you in the most effective way to bring about the adaptations that you need. Um, training needs to be more specific and more focused on a, a specific trade or energy system. And these are all great topics to explore in, in future podcasts. Uh, but I think an intermediate climber, that is someone who should probably read Training for Climbing or one of the other uh, good books out there or read them all and try to figure out, you know, be a student of climbing and of training and how you can uh, create a long-term training program. And, and this is where self-assessment really comes in because all climbers advance kind of on a different path. Some are naturally strong and get good at, at bouldering. You know, they can power up a, a V6 or a V7 in their first year of climbing, maybe harder. 
but yet you put them on a rope on a vertical route with small holds and they're hanging on 510. So uh, there might be a, another climber who's just the opposite, who can dance up a 510 or a 511 their first year in the sport, but uh, doesn't have the strength and power um, or the aggressiveness to really gun on a, a harder, bolder problem. So that's where self-assessment comes in to really figure out what your limiting constraints are. Again, a coach working with you one-on-one -on -one is always the best approach. But you know, not everybody has that option. Most people don't. So you need to be a bit of a self-coach. Um, and uh, my books all have self-assessments that you can go through and score yourself in different areas. That is a good starting point. Having some video to analyze your climbing is another uh, great technique to kind of see uh, how you, you know, behave on a climb. Do you, do you climb smoothly and efficiently until you get scared? And then all of a sudden you start to fall apart? Well, if so, then it's your mind that's holding you back. Uh, and you're wasting energy. You're not making the most of the strength you possess. And and so, um, uh, you know, you really need to focus more on the mental side of things. And, you know, the fingerboard isn't going to fix that problem if it's your head that is holding you back. So again, intermediates, you need more of a, a specific program designed for you. And, uh, and that takes a little work to get it dialed in just right. Um, and it's somewhat a path of trial and error, but the more engaged you are in the process, the better, uh, the more quickly you can um, find that path, as opposed to just kind of haphazard training, making it up as you go week to week. That doesn't really cut it. Most people end up way off course. Um, and that's when they hit plateaus that can last months or years and become very frustrating. And, uh, uh, you know, again, with an intelligent training program and um, an accurate self-assessment, you can uh, break those plateaus. They shouldn't last more than a few months uh, or part of a season. You should be able to punch through those with the right approach. Now, moving on to an advanced or an elite climber, I'm talking people that are up, you know, uh, climbing, projecting 513, 514, 515, bouldering the V double digits. Um, you know, if you've made it that far, you're probably a pretty good climber technically and mentally presumably you have a pretty good skill set as well you, you still have to build on those um, but uh, getting the next grade eking out that next level often comes down to getting stronger being more powerful or if you're a rope climber uh, developing not only strength and power but power endurance as well you know, an aerobic endurance to be able to recover and to persevere through long days at the crag or up on a big wall, if that's your thing. So uh, there's uh, a need to really dial in your training to a very high level. And haphazard ad-lib type of training programs just don't work at the elite level. Um, and that's one reason why a lot of people will get to 13A and just stall there forever, because they you know, haven't never um, taken their training to the next level. And that doesn't necessarily mean training harder, but training smarter. Um, you know, nuance is a word I use a lot. And yes, you do have to train hard on certain days and certain uh, training phases, but other workouts might not be, you might not perceive them as being so hard, but they are nuanced and just targeted in such a uh, precise way that they get you the adaptations you need to to get that next level. And uh, 
Again, uh, the more advanced you are, the more nuanced your training program needs to be. Uh, and uh, you know, if you're one of these pros climbing 514, uh, 515, you can't just go to the crags and advance to the next grade. You know, climbers like Adam Andra and Alex Megos, they alternate between training blocks in the gym and then uh, performance climbing blocks at the crag. And they go back and forth, and each time trying to take their training to the next level so that they can take their climbing to the next level. Um, now, you or I, we are not Adam Andra or Alex Megos, so we can't, uh, as much as it's fun to watch the videos of those guys and the stuff they do, or to read about their training programs, you know, Adam campusing umpteen times a week, that will injure most of us. And it's, uh, you know, a, a common mistake of young enthusiastic climbers is to copy the training program of some elite climber or of a pro climber at their gym that they observe. And trust me, that's a prescription for injury. You need to always uh, identify what is most needed for you. And of course, also train in ways uh, that your body is ready for. If you've only been climbing a year or two or three, you're probably not ready to do a lot of campus training. Maybe some basic laddering exercises, but all the crazy double dinos and one, four, seven, you know, long reach ladders, that stuff will get you injured if your tendons, if your rotator cuff, if your scapular stabilizers haven't been trained ahead of time. And I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later on and certainly probably dedicate a whole podcast to that because it's a critical topic. As you do the more stressful exercises, you have to be sure that uh, you are ready for them, that they're not going to get you injured because rule number one in training, as I always say, is don't get injured. It's like uh, the Hippocratic Oath for doctors. First, do no harm. Okay, doctor, the first thing they want to do is not hurt the patient. Well, applied to climbing, that is, uh, uh, don't get injured training. If you get hurt climbing, hey, that happens, unfortunately. Um, at least you're out there doing, you know, the sport. But in a gym where you're preparing for the sport, that's no place to get injured. Um, and that's a, an epic failure if that happens to a climber or if a coach uh, gives a climber an inappropriate workout and gets them injured that's an epic fail because it, it breaks that kind of Hippocratic oath, you might say, of a climbing coach. Okay, before I wrap up a topic one on training program design, I guess I should mention a periodization because it's a question I get asked a lot about. And most training books have a chapter on program design and application of periodization schemes. And, and periodization uh, is simply a way of organizing your training. It's a system that takes you through kind of a progressive cycle of various exercises where uh, training intensity and volume varies over the course of several weeks or months with specific number of rest days in between and after a few training blocks, a period of tapering and then a, a peaking period where typically you would compete and then a period of rest or regeneration before you repeat uh, that uh, periodization scheme again. Now, periodization was developed for weightlifters and for the Olympic sports. Uh, a lot of this stuff goes back to Eastern European, you know, the Russian sports scientists uh, in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of 
climbers take weightlifting programs and apply them to climbing. And climbing is not weightlifting. Certainly, you can use weights in certain ways to help you uh, train effectively for climbing. But the workout that a bodybuilder or powerlifter does in a gym and the program they use and the periodization scheme they use is not appropriate to just apply blindly to climbing. For instance, you know, most bodybuilding or strength uh, training or powerlifting programs um, have a uh, follow kind of a, a block periodization scheme where you have a, a period of hypertrophy training where the goal is to do exercises and reps and rest intervals designed to make muscle cells larger, hypertrophy. And then after a period, say a month, uh, uh, you switch then to more of a strength program where you're doing heavier weights, fewer reps, longer rest periods. So that trains the nervous system more. And then often they, uh, the third block will be more power-oriented, perhaps involving Olympic lifts or plyometrics. Now, again, those three blocks, hypertrophy, strength training, power training, from uh, the traditional bodybuilding or strength training world, that's not what you want to do for climbing. And so what most uh, climbing coaches have come to agree on and what experience has taught us is if you're going to use a periodization scheme, you need to do it a little bit differently. And if you read my books, I have a, a, a nice beginner periodization scheme called the 4321 cycle. Um, that's a 10 week program, four weeks. The first block is four weeks of um, aerobic climbing. Uh, that's high volume climbing. You're not climbing till you pump out. You're not climbing to failure, at least not most of the time. Your focus is volume, going to a climbing gym and doing a thousand feet of roped climbing, let's say, in a session. So you might be climbing several number grades below your limit, but you're climbing for volume. You're training that aerobic energy system. Uh, and uh, while you're not going to get stronger, that's not the purpose of that four-week block. You will develop endurance. And most importantly, that high-volume climbing is great for improving your technique and your economy of movement. So for a beginner or intermediate climber, this is a, a very beneficial training block. So after that four-week endurance, stamina, skill training block, you then move on to a three-week block of strength training. And this is maximum strength training. That's where you would do things that uh, create rapid fatigue, like in 10 or 15 seconds or less. So weighted pull-ups, um, or if you can only do five pull-ups at body weight, you would do five sets of five pull-ups, let's say, something like that. And I can't get into the nuance of just, you know, what's the right program for you here, but I'm just giving you a sense of that three-week block should be strength exercises. Fingerboard training uh, with added weight would fit into this block where you're doing brief five to 10 second hangs with long rest periods in between. Um, you could do other types of strength training, you know, of the antagonist muscles, uh, rotator cuff muscles, uh, scapular stabilizers. Those are muscles that every serious climber should be training uh, at least a couple of days a week, really year round, but certainly during a strength training block would be a great time to do some of that training. And then uh, the two-week block of the 4-3-2-1 cycle 
is uh, two weeks of power endurance or strength endurance. And this is the climbing that pumps you up, that uh, blasts your forearms. Uh, so whether it's doing four by fours on a bouldering wall, where you do four reps on a boulder problem with very limited rest in between, um, and then you do that with four different boulder problems, so 16 total ascents done in about 16 minutes, that'll wreck you. That's a great power endurance uh, workout. Um, doing short, steep sport climbs, like in a climbing gym, 30, 35 foot overhanging near maximum difficulty routes that just blast you, that you're fighting to make it to the chains, or maybe you don't make it to the top. That is power endurance type training. And there's other protocols like pull-up intervals and um, uh, you know uh, fingerboard pyramid training or repeater training on a fingerboard. That's more strength endurance, power endurance stuff that you work in that two-week block. And then the final uh, one week of the 4-3-2-1 cycle is a week of taper or a week of rest. If you're heading uh, onto a road trip after your training block, that one week should be a taper uh, of very um, brief workouts, uh, but still kind of high in intensity. Uh, and I've written extensively about how to taper properly, properly in, in the new edition of my Training for Climbing book. If you're going to head right back into another training cycle, well, then I would just take a week off and do active recovery, active you know, rest, do some other stuff, go skiing, you know, go mountain biking, uh, just relax for a week and then head back and begin the next training cycle back with the four weeks of uh, aerobic stamina skill training type uh, workouts so uh, and you can uh, take that four three two one cycle and truncate it into a three two one if you're a more advanced climber uh, and if you're training indoors and you don't really have a immediate need for endurance and you already have a high skill level, well, then that four weeks is uh, less necessary. And maybe you just want to do the three weeks of strength and power followed by the two weeks of power and strength endurance, followed by the one week of rest and taper, and then right back to the three weeks. So a, a more advanced climber, somebody, let's say, hard sport climbing or bouldering might uh, do the three two, one training cycle. Okay, well, I see I'm up to about 30 minutes here. Uh, so much for keeping this podcast to 30 minutes, but let's forge ahead and we'll blast through topics two and three. Topic two is the importance of getting stronger during the off-season, which again, if you're a northern hemisphere climber uh, in, in a high-latitude location, it's now. Uh, January, February, the, these are your months to get strong for the next climbing season. You know, year over year, of course you need to improve your climbing technique. Of course you need to improve your mental game. Even the best climbers have to always be asking themselves, can I eke out um, a little more economic movement? Can I uh, refine my mental skills in a way that uh, I'll be a more effective climber and get more miles per gallon, get more out of the strength that I already possess? But again, that aside, when it comes to strength training during the winter, um, for an elite climber, it often comes down to stronger forearms, how to make the finger flexors stronger. Now, for all climbers, it's more than just forearm strength. Obviously, you need to train total core strength. You need to always be strengthening your stabilizer and antagonist muscles so that your joints remain healthy and strong and supportive. I'm talking the wrist, the elbow, the shoulder joints, those are the three 
that are most important. And uh, many climbers overlook training the antagonist muscles and end up with elbow tendonitis or any number of issues in the shoulder, rotator cuff, uh, a tear of the labrum in the shoulder is an increasingly common injury, often requiring surgery. And while these injuries can happen while you're climbing, they seem to be increasingly common among people that, that train really hard, uh, that overtrain, or that train on a campus board and not having scapular stabilizers that are strong and in control enough to safely do big, powerful campus moves. Um, and so again, that's a topic I'll probably dedicate a whole podcast to in the future. So while the winter mission is to develop stronger uh, forearm flexors for many intermediate and advanced climbers, uh, you have to always be training the supporting cast of muscles. And by the way, if your shoulder muscles, uh, specifically the rotator cuff, the scapular stabilizers, are weak or in some way injured and not functioning properly, your brain will dial back your forearm strength. So, um, you know, your, your brain tr is trying to protect you. It's trying to avoid uh, you getting into injurious positions or situations. And so if you have shoulder instability, if you have an injured rotator cuff, if you have a, a scapular stability problem, uh, your brain will dial back your your arm power, your your grip strength, and um, limit you on the rock. So doing all the fingerboard training in the world, it's kind of like pointless because your brain won't let you use that strength in dynamic situations on the rock. So that is why I stress the importance of a concurrent training program for the scapular stabilizers for the rotator cuff uh, during the winter while you are also training the finger strength so that when spring comes, when climbing, you know, when performance season comes, uh, not only is your grip strength uh, at a newfound level that will open up the next grade, but, you know, your brain won't shut you down. You will be stronger through the shoulder um, and uh, your wrist extensors will be stronger to position your your hand so that you can grip in the most effective and efficient way. So there's way more to the picture than just uh, how long you can hang on a hangboard or how much weight you can support while hanging on a on a small crimp on the hangboard. Again, nuance is a key word when it comes to advanced training for climbing. Okay, so uh, when it comes to getting stronger during the winter, and you might think of that as your prime directive. Again, I'm not speaking to the beginner climber here. Beginner climber, prime directive is learn to climb. But for the more advanced climber, if you're climbing 512, trying to get to 513, if you're climbing 514, trying to get to 515, you need to get stronger. Um, and so, you know, a hangboard is a great tool. A campus board is a great tool, but you need to use them properly. And again, a lot of people, unfortunately, just uh, throw themselves at the campus board um, or do some crazy stuff on the hangboard. And uh, it if it wipes them out, they figure, hey, effective program. And actually, here's the irony of that. Uh, if you're training maximum strength, on a hangboard, if you're trading 
power on a campus board, you actually shouldn't be getting fatigued. If you're getting fatigued or if you're in some way getting pumped, that means you're training uh, power endurance. You're not training maximum strength and maximum power output. Uh, exercises to properly uh, trigger the adaptations to make you stronger, to make you more powerful um, in the instant must be brief, must be near maximal, really 10 seconds or less. So you should be using hangboard protocols that are uh, involve hangs of just 5 to 10 seconds at the most with uh, significant rest in between so that you're not getting pumped. If you're getting pumped, you're training strength endurance or power endurance. Um, you're not training maximum strength. And that's something I've written extensively on in uh, the new edition of my Training for Climbing book. And there's a number of hangboard protocols that work. There's not one that is the best. Uh, there's some research that has been done by a variety of individuals that all support different schemes. But most of them will work as long as you follow the basic guidelines. High-intensity brief hangs with extensive rest in between. So the one that, that I like most is what I call the 7 slash 53 and that is you hang seven seconds, you rest 53 seconds, so that's one minute, um, and then you hang seven seconds, rest 53, that's a second minute, and then you do it a third time, hang seven seconds, rest 53 seconds. So that's a three-minute, three-repetition, maximum strength set on the hangboard, and then you rest three to five minutes before you repeat it a second time, Maybe you do it a third or fourth time if you're a more advanced climber. Um, you can use small holds at body weight, or you can use larger, more comfortable holds, which is what I prefer, a hold that's three-quarters of an inch or you know maybe 20 millimeters in depth, uh, and then add you know weight to your body via a weight belt or hanging weights from a harness. And if you're a strong climber, you'll have to go heavy. I often use up to... Um, 90 pounds that I hang from my belay loop. I weigh 160 pounds, so I'm adding more than half of my body weight for those seven-second hangs. It took me years to get there. You should not try that. You should start at 10 pounds and increment up from there and find out what the right weight for you is. Um, if you can, if you ever can't hang for seven seconds, then the weight is too heavy. Uh, in fact, uh, as a rule, you know you found the right weight when the first couple of sets, the seven seconds, kind of is submaximal. You know, you kind of feel like you could hang 10 seconds, so you have a few seconds in the tank, but you still end the hangs at seven seconds. Uh, but then on maybe your third or, you know, whatever your final set is, that last hang or two, the seven seconds, is about where you're failing. And if that's how um, it, it rolls out for you, uh, then you found the right weight for that workout. And you want to keep records of your weights. You want to use a stopwatch or a timing app to keep yourself on program with this protocol, the 753 protocol. And uh, uh, doing this exercise with weight added two days a week at the, at the maximum. That's it. If you're just using body weight, you can probably do it three days a week. Um, this type of training is hard on the nervous system. That's important. That's how it gets you the adaptations to open up new levels of strength. But that also means it takes time to recover. You may not feel fatigued or sore after this type of workout, but uh, the nervous system, you, you can be sure, it takes 
72 hours to recover from this kind of workout, sometimes longer. So uh, if you ever return to the gym and don't feel 100% fresh, you know why. Your nervous system hasn't recovered from your last uh, hangboard workout. Applied to pull-ups, again, uh, you know, I like uh, for strength to do sets of just five to eight repetitions um, and maybe do five or six sets with three to five minutes rest in between. So if uh, three to eight reps is all you can do at body weight, well, then that's, you don't need to add any weight. But again, for me, I need to add 40 or 50 pounds around my waist to do this workout. Now, for really strong climbers, elite climbers, uh, I'm talking the 514, V14 kind of guys, you'll probably have to add too much weight uh, to be practical to do the hangboard and pull-up training the way I've just described. And at that point, um, instead of trying to hang 150 pounds or uh, 100 pounds or whatever from your body, you need to start doing one-arm training, one-arm hangboard training, one-arm pull-up training. Um, and again, that's a very small percentage of climbers that this would be appropriate for. And I'll just leave it at that. If you get to the point of having to add 50 kilos or 100 pounds to your body, then you're probably ready to start doing your hangboard and pull-up training with one arm rather than two. Again, these are strength training workouts, uh, not um, strength endurance or endurance training. So the goal is to train the nervous system, not get pumped, which produces a totally different uh, set of adaptations uh, and is the scope of power endurance and strength endurance workouts, not maximum strength. And by the way, campus training should also be done on these maximum strength workouts. I like to couple fingerboard training and campus board training together into a complex where you do um, one set on the hangboard, three seven-second hangs with 53 seconds rest in between. And then during my rest break before the next camp, uh, before the next hangboard set, you go over to the campus board, you do a couple ladders. Or if you're a strong climber, you do a couple of double dinos. Um, and going back and forth in this way, uh, it's a very synergistic, albeit advanced, training method called complex training. Um, it really works, but again, uh, small amounts. If you're doing 10 or 20 sets of this stuff, it's way too much. You're going to get yourself injured. It's uh, going to dig you a really deep hole to recover from. And really smart training is about doing the least amount of training possible to get the desired adaptation. If you're doing anything more than that amount, then you are uh, kind of flushing money down the drain, you might say. You know, it's wasted time, it's wasted energy, um, and it's not effective training because it takes you longer to recover, which means more days uh, away from the gym. So uh, the goal is to do the least amount of training to produce positive results. Now, again, the more advanced you are, the more you have to do. So Adam Andra or Jimmy Webb needs to do a lot more reps on the hangboard than uh, Eric Hurst does. That's for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, and that applies probably to you as well, unless you climb 515 or uh, Boulder V15. Okay, so now with all this talk about getting stronger during the off-season and how important that is, what about endurance training? Do you need to do a lot of endurance training? Well, again, beginner climbers, uh, intermediate climbers should be climbing a lot. So by climbing a lot of routes, a lot of mileage, you are training endurance. Uh, and that's a good thing. For the elite climber, 
you know, that offseason really has to be invested in taking their strength to a higher level and also preparing their body for the rigors of more uh, stressful, more difficult routes. So that means training the rotator cuff and the stabilizer muscles and uh, just making yourself more bulletproof to the extreme positions and forces that are involved in high-level climbing. And so the endurance training isn't really an important focus during uh, their off-season. Now, these elite climbers, let's say investing two or three months of an off-season into getting stronger as they segue um, or transition into their climbing season, where they might be doing more roped climbing outdoors and beginning to project or travel, they do need to start doing more endurance training. Uh, Typically, you would do a block of three or four weeks of power endurance training that will uh, develop the adaptations uh, that allow you to persevere in those very pumpy situations. Uh, And I don't want to get long-winded on this because that's another topic to explore later on. But after that winter of strength training, you do need a transitional period where you ramp up your mileage and also do some of that power endurance training to get the the adaptations that are necessary for that uh, lactic energy system to, to function optimally. Uh, but really, those elite climbers, they gain their fitness by climbing outside, you know, uh, whether it's uh, every weekend uh, being at the crags doing roped routes. And getting pumped and, and, and climbing a lot of mileage. If you're out there two days, you're going to cover quite a bit of terrain typically. Uh, or if they're a full-time climber, you know, traveling, they might be climbing three, four, five days a week. And uh, naturally, you are building endurance during the on-season. And the challenge then is to not lose your max strength, which is often hard. Um, a lot of pro climbers, they come out of the winter stronger than they've ever been. And they uh, head out on the road, and uh, and after a month or two, they're losing max strength. If you if you did a strength test on them, they would not be as strong as they were right out of the gym after their training block. But they're climbing harder because uh, you know they're uh, they've advanced their power endurance, and you know for roped climbing, um, they're they're brimming. They're they're right where they want to be. But again, at some point, you start losing that max strength uh, more and more as you're on the road, and uh, it becomes problematic. And that's why you know some of the best pro climbers limit their climbing trips to just um, a few weeks to to maybe a month, and then head right back to the gym. Uh, you know, Wolfgang Gulick famously applied this strategy where he would have a training block of a month or two, and then uh, do a trip somewhere and crush you know, open up a new grade level and then return to the gym. And uh, maybe after the trip, take a little break, of course, but then return to the gym, train to get the max strength a notch higher and then off on the next trip. Um, If you're on one of those endless road trips, it's really tough to keep your max strength uh, up throughout the entire trip. So just keep that in mind. So again, um, as kind of an overview, if you are more of an advanced climber, you think of the off-season as a strength training period, and then you think of the on-season as, well, it's a performance period, obviously, but you'll be um, spinning up your endurance uh, as you progress the first few weeks and months of that 
on season, that performance season. And really your mission is just to try to keep your max strength levels up. If you're a weekend warrior, you can usually do this by doing one strength training session a week. Like if you're climbing Saturday and Sunday at a crag, you might rest Monday and then do a strength workout on Tuesday. Uh, go bouldering, do some hangboarding, do some campus boarding. Um, and that's your one max strength workout to kind of maintain your strength levels, hopefully during the on season. Um, and then, you know, after that Tuesday, uh, really intensive workout, really all you need to do on Wednesday or Thursday is some endurance climbing uh, to keep uh, you know blood flowing, to keep your mitochondria function up, uh, and uh, uh, maybe a few power endurance sets um, on that Wednesday or Thursday. But you don't want to do anything to create undue fatigue because you want to get to the crag on the weekend 100% fresh. And, and that leads me into topic three. Okay, topic three is how to make the most of your gym climbing time. And hopefully I can circle back to where I was going with my thought there about kind of uh, doing too much uh, training um, in a performance climbing situation. Okay, when it comes to gym training time, and I train mostly at a home gym just because where I live um, and my time availability, I can't travel an hour to the nearest mega gym uh, very often and uh, we have a wonderful home gym and a tread wall and I can do everything I need to do at my home gym Um, and uh, so that's good that's time efficient and that's important to me and it's probably important to you Uh, if you're anything like me you know balancing work and or school family commitments uh, chores like Yard work, paying bills, keeping your car running, whatever. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't have a lot of free time floating around just to dedicate to endless training. So it's about uh, getting a few good workouts in per week and making the most of those workouts and then hopefully hitting the crag on the weekend when the weather's good and making the most of it and having a blast and sending some hard routes and uh, working on your lifetime project, whatever your goal is during the outdoor climbing season. So, you know, I have kind of a set of, you know, rules and various mantras and guiding principles that I've developed over the years. And, uh, you know, I share them with my sons. We kind of use them to kind of help us remember key ideas to keep them forefront in your mind. And I'll share some of those with you in upcoming podcasts. But uh, a big one that a recurrent theme that I voice to climbers all the time is When it comes to training for climbing, you can't cram. Remember in school, you would cram for an exam the night before. You'd stay up all night. You'd be studying right up to when the exam began, thinking that you were going to save yourself. And and maybe you did. You know, sometimes cramming can work. You know, that short-term memory will carry you through the exam. But in training for climbing, cramming doesn't work. So if you're a weekend warrior and you're going to the gym and destroying yourself on a Thursday... Big mistake. Big mistake. Um, You're not going to be fresh on Saturday to climb your best. You might think you're fresh. You might tell yourself you're fresh. Um, You might make a valiant effort on your project, or maybe you'll send it, but I guarantee you, you would be fresher and stronger and climb better if you hadn't destroyed yourself on a Thursday before a, a Saturday of climbing. So that weekday training and making the most of your indoor training is very, very important. And as I mentioned earlier, the idea with all training should be to do the least amount of training that will produce the desired adaptation. If you're doing more training than that, 
you're digging yourself a deeper hole for recovery, which delays um, when you can do your next workout. It delays when you're going to be 100% fresh uh, to go climbing your best outside. Um, And it also makes injury, you know, overuse injury more likely when you are uh, doing more than you need to. So uh, keep that in mind. You can't cram when it comes to training. And you should use that axiom also to motivate you to get started today with your off-season training program. Let's say your outdoor season starts in late March. Okay, you could wait until late February to start training, and you'd probably make some gains in the four weeks until late March when your outdoor season starts. But you'll do a heck of a lot better this season if you start training now in January and have a 10-week period where you can uh, do a 4-3-2-1 cycle or do um, a couple of 3-2-1 training cycles or just focus, if you're an advanced climber, on getting stronger, getting more powerful, and as I mentioned earlier, making your shoulders stronger and more bulletproof. Do that, and when you begin climbing outdoors in the spring, uh, it will open up a new level for you very quickly. So don't wait to cram. Get started today. Okay. Now, you know, developing that long-term plan, you know, that goes back to where we started this podcast, you know, having kind of a long-term vision and designing a program that uh, meets your needs uh, is appropriate uh, for addressing your weaknesses and doesn't try to train like a climber that you're not. Again, if you're climbing 510, you shouldn't be trying to train like a 513 climber. It doesn't work. It will get you injured. But you also can't go to the gym and just hang out. Okay, that doesn't work either. So really, the uh, you know, assuming you have a game plan, you walk in the door with a game plan into the climbing gym, uh, then of course you have to execute that plan. Okay, so, um, you know, uh, and that for some people is the crux of the matter. You know, whether you have a, an hour or three to spend at the climbing gym to train, how are you investing that time? How well are you investing that time? And, you know, people tend to go down one of two paths when they go into the gym, and, and neither is right or wrong. Uh, and next time you go to the gym, maybe take note of what people around you are doing. And there's two basic camps that people fall into, performance climbers and social climbers. And you know where I'm going with this. You know, the performance climber shows up at the gym with a plan and they execute the plan beautifully. They minimize going off on tangents, whether that's excessive socializing or falling into the trap of training with somebody else in a way that you hadn't intended training on that day. Um, To be effective, you need to stay on mission, execute the exercises precisely, rest adequately or according to the training protocol that you're using get the workout done and then get home and on to other important aspects of your life and you know post workout it's good to get a meal with good nutrition and protein so again if you're into uh pushing your limits climbing your best this season you need to go to the gym and have a little bit of a um, work mindset, I guess you would say. Um, now, the second camp that people fall into is that of being a social climber. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, okay? People climb for different reasons. We have different value systems. We get different things out of climbing. And certainly the friendships um, and the people you meet uh, in through climbing 
it can really enrich your life and is, is a great part of climbing. Um, so I'm not um, demeaning people that go to the gym and spend more time talking than climbing. The problem is when a self-professed serious climber with big goals, a big tick list, an exciting road trip in the planning, uh, when that person falls into the trap of behaving like a social climber at the gym, that's, that's a big problem because it's no way to really make big gains and to prepare yourself uh, and to be fair to yourself in being able to pursue those goals and have a good chance of achieving them. So uh, the bottom line is it ultimately, it all comes down to being efficient with your use of time when you're at the gym. If you only have an hour or two, you better get in there and get to work. Do your warm-up, then do the meat of your workout uh, in a very focused way, then do a cool down, and then get out of the gym and on to the next important thing in your life. If you have more time available, if you have three or four hours to hang out, well, then maybe you can go off on a few more tangents than the other guy uh, in terms of uh, socializing. So, okay, well, let me wrap this up here with um, a few tips to help you make the most of your gym climbing time. Number one, show up with a plan, then execute the plan. Repeat the mantra, plan your workout, then work your plan. Number two, don't get sucked into long conversations or another person's workout. Be friendly, be positive, be uplifting to all those who engage you, but keep the conversation short and then get back to work. Number three, put the smartphone away. (laughs) Hey, it's fun to get a video of your send of a rad boulder problem or doing some PR exercise, uh, but resist the, the need or the urge uh, to pick up the phone at every rest break uh, because that'll that'll wreck your workout. Um, it'll wreck your focus. Excellent results come from staying with the program, um, executing the plan precisely. If you're fingerboard training or interval training, making the intervals spot on accurate in terms of the ratio of exercise to rest. Um, so get it done like a pro and you'll get the results uh, that uh, a pro would get. And and number four, eliminate junk training. Now, I mentioned that earlier, and what I'm talking about here, and this is a topic I could go on for another hour on, uh, but um, it is any training that you do in your workout that um, isn't providing a benefit other than you know, it's, it's doing nothing but creating fatigue, and in that case, hindering your workout not helping your workout. Uh, and uh, so you have to think about, you know, your session at a gym and, and getting rid of the junk training. It's kind of like cutting the fat off your steak. So uh, in that way, if your uh, workout of the day is to build strength and power, let's say you're going to the gym and after a warm up, you're going to do some limit bouldering. Um, then you're going to do some hang boarding with weight and couple that with some campus training. Uh, all of this designed for maximum strength and power. But then you say, hey, why not put on a rope and uh, pump out some laps and get a a blistering pump at the end of the workout? That is junk training. It added nothing to your uh, goal of training maximum strength and power. And in fact, it may hinder the adaptations. It may diminish what you would have otherwise gotten from your hangboard and campus board training because the 
uh, gene expression that results from different workouts can be conflicting, uh, what is often termed interference. And uh, that is a topic um, relating to energy system training. And we'll uh, talk about that more in another podcast. Uh, But you need to keep your workouts focused. If you really want to do an endurance workout, then, you know, do it another day or do it do a split workout if you're an advanced climber where you do endurance in the morning and max strength and power in the afternoon but you don't want to do them in the same workout uh, otherwise it uh, is not beneficial and fits into the category of junk training because all it does is create fatigue not every workout has to end with you blasted um, yes it's gratifying to walk out of the gym and feel worked and feel blasted um, but that's not how uh, all climbing workouts should be um, if that's all you're looking for for a work uh, from a workout then join a crossfit gym because you'll walk out of there blasted and wrecked um, but It's not effective training for climbing, obviously. Okay, well, I've gone long enough. In fact, I've gone over an hour. So um, you got two podcasts for the price of one here, I guess, since my intention was a 30-minute podcast. In any case, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes and uh, share the podcast with your friends. And of course, I invite you to visit my website, trainingforclimbing.com. There's lots of articles written there over the years on a wide range of topics from mental training to technique training to strength and power training to training for youth climbers and injury rehab and prevention. You name it, it's there. And there's also information on some of the best books available to climbers. The the two Gimme Craft books um, uh, from Germany including their new uh, Gimme Craft Air book, which you might want to check out. Um, And also my two new books, Training for Climbing 3rd Edition, which came out late last summer. And uh, here in January, just released the Rock Climbers Exercise Guide, which is just what it says. It's a book of exercises. There's very little science. There's very little embellishment into other areas. It's just an exercise book. One exercise per page, and you can just keep flipping and open your mind up to, uh, you know, what uh, you might consider doing on any given workout. Um, It's kind of an A to Z guide to exercises. If you want a comprehensive training guide, that's training for climbing. It's kind of the Bible, dare I say, in terms of uh, it's got the latest sports science to back up the exercises and the programs. It also has chapters on mental training and technique training and nutrition and injury. So you get the idea. It's a comprehensive book, whereas the Rock Climbers Exercise Guide is simply an exercise guide. So uh, check those out. And finally, uh, surf on over to Epic TV. Um, This summer, uh, I did a series of five training videos. Uh, We shot them last summer, and uh, they're now rolling out this winter on Epic TV. So go check those out. Well, that does it for this edition of the Training for Climbing podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, be safe, be strong, and climb on. Thank you.